you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I don't know about you, but you know, we all have certain songs of Christmas that we like a lot. I really like the music of that song. I mean, I like the words too, but man, I really dig it. We should sing that again Wednesday, no matter what you got going on. <laughs> Just add it. <laughs> and bring the saxophone. That'd be good. Anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful. We're so thankful, Father. You're so good to us. We pray, Lord, you would open up our hearts and minds to recognize all the many wonderful things that we should be thankful for. We pray, Lord, that if, this, if that's not our state of mind, if that's not where we are in our hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would touch us, that you remove whatever bitterness is there or whatever sadness is there, that, Father, we may recognize again how wonderful you are and how wonderful you are to us. And so, Father, as we continue our worship this morning, we do ask that you would bless our time in your word. We pray, Lord, again, that we would not only have an understanding of all that Paul is communicating here, but, Father, we'd recognize that these things have been preserved by you for us, and that there's a reason why we need to read and understand, that there are things that you desire to speak to our hearts and our minds about concerning our lives, the way we live, granting us understanding of ourselves and others and how we are to respond. And so, Father, we ask that you would tarry with us in, in your patience and grace and in your strength, that, Father, you would help us to understand Help us, Father, to apply that again, Lord, our joy may be full. And so, Father, we ask now these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes, again, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, that we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For, if, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Last week we ended with verse 5 and we asked ourselves some questions uh, in light of what Paul says here when it comes to examining yourselves and what he wanted these Corinthian believers to do. I do want to continue that a little bit this morning because there are so many things in that passage that kind of are brought to mind when it comes to how we are to live our lives as believers. Again, there's a lot of ways to approach this as far as the questions that we bring to the table. Again, I'm thinking primarily in two general ways that's important. Some have used this as a way to ask, what are the evidences that I am genuinely a Christian? And that's, I think, a right and proper way to look at that passage and to apply it to our lives. Really, what's very similar to that, closely related to that, is also what are the signs of my maturing as a believer? 
Because the evidence of a genuine faith and the signs of a maturing believer really kind of coincide. And, and you know, there's not something you can kind of cut and make two separate lists out of. And so even if you are assured of your salvation, don't just dismiss this to say, well, I don't need to do this. I know that I'm saved. Because again, what Paul, I believe, has been kind of focusing on is encouraging this group of believers to grow up and to mature, to take on responsibility and take action uh, in dealing with this issue that he's been talking about. Again, when it comes to this question of examining ourselves in light of these two things, what do we look for? Again, remember that it's got nothing to do with feelings. So I'm not, I'm not against feelings. I'm, a big kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a big advocate on controlling our feelings. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean by that that we should somehow no longer be spontaneous. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying that we deny the way that we feel. I never would say that. But we don't make decisions based only on how we feel. And you definitely don't make evaluations of your life only on the way that you feel. Because you may feel differently tomorrow and then feel a third way on Tuesday. And that would kind of cause us to be all over the place. So we are to use our minds. We are to use the word of God as our standard. So again, it's not just some arbitrary thing that we just ask ourselves, you know, you know I'm examining myself. Yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. That's not really what we're getting to when it comes to this. It's got nothing to do with the ordinances. You know, some people say, well, I take communion every time they, they have it. Well, good. Uh, but that's not really involved in this. It really doesn't have much to do with church attendance. It does to a degree, because failing to gather with believers is an indication of perhaps something being wrong. But if you want to truly take a spiritual inventory of your life, to find out if you are genuinely and authentically a Christian, or that you are maturing in your faith, there are many different kinds of areas that I would suggest, as I was reading through quite a few different books and commentaries and sermons. Uh, there's five that uh, I think are important. Number one is penitence. In other words, people in the kingdom of heaven, that's Christians, we are to be poor in spirit. That basically means that you have a sense of your own bankruptcy, a sense of your own spiritual poverty, a sense of an, an overwhelming sense of your own sinfulness. As a true believer, there should be and there will be an ongoing resentment of sin in your life, as well as other sins that dishonor the God that we love. And I can say, I know for myself, not maybe as often as it should be, but I have mentioned to you before that as I get older, there are times that I look back on certain moments in my life where there is a greater sense of regret and resentment towards the way that I reacted to people or what I said to them or what I did to them, um, you know, those types of things. It, it, it weighs heavier on my heart. I just, I hate the things that I've said and done at times with others. Going all the way back even when I was a teenager, uh, how flippant I was towards certain individuals. And yeah, I kind of look back now and I can, I can see maybe some of the pain that I may have inflicted on others. And it, it literally it kind of hurts you know, not that I'm running around feeling sorry for myself, because it's my fault. I'm the one that did it. Uh, but, but I know that that is evidence that my heart is changing. Because there are times that I didn't even consider that. I didn't even think about it. And now, not only do I remember, but, but it bothers me. 
John 1, 6 again says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, it is the characteristic of a Christian to acknowledge sin and confess sin. So it's not then just what I mentioned where I'm only thinking back to when I was, let's say, a teenager or a young adult and I did wrong. Yes, that does bother me and there's a resentment and, and towards myself and, and a regret that is there. But that also serves kind of as a, as a foundation or as a springboard then to evaluate my life now to make sure I'm not doing the same things just in a different way. To make sure that I'm not doing the same things but in a nicer way. Because that doesn't count. The way that I treat people, the way that I talk to them, uh, the patience or lack of patience that I may have, all those things come into play. And so the idea here is that I need to acknowledge my sin, my weakness, and confess that to God. That is the evidence. This confessing of sin, this acknowledging of sin in our life is evidence that one has been forgiven and that one has been cleansed. The one who doesn't deal with the sin in his life is evidently not a transformed individual. As a true believer, there should be an ongoing resentment of the sin in your life because it, again, dishonors the God you say that you love. Again, you cannot create that on your own. We need the Spirit of God to change us to become that. It does begin with you and I following through in obedience to what he said in this examination and in longing for this regret, a longing to have this resentment, to view sin the same way that God does. Secondly, it would be in the area of righteousness. Again, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So again, in a true believer, in a maturing believer, there is not only an aversion to sin, there is an attraction to righteousness. Now, I think it's easy for us as we live our lives as Christians, we don't really, we don't ask ourselves that question very much. Do I love righteousness or am I pursuing righteousness? And it's not going to be something you're going to think about every day. But I do think from the scripture, it's clear that we should think about that from time to time. Am I an individual who wants to pursue righteousness? So again, it's not an emotional thing. It's, it's a commitment that we have. It's a commitment to something that God has established as being right for us. So in the same way that, you know, we hate to use this illustration because it always affects us in different ways. But, you know, if you want to lose weight, you've got to be committed. And it's not an emotional thing. Because if it's emotional, you're not going to do well. Because you know how many times I, when I, when I fail in a diet, it's because I feel like eating ice cream. I feel like eating pie. There are times I feel like eating pie and ice cream. <laughs> or whatever the case may happen to be. And so what it is, it's just, it's just a commitment. And you just follow through on it. It's just a part of your life. And you have to review it from time to time. So there should be this aversion to wickedness and a love of holiness. Do you have a desire for what is right? <laughs> I haven't thought about this. You know, I, I've read about this and I've seen it in my life. You know, we, we've probably all seen this. You know, as a kid growing up, uh, sometimes in school, there's certain kids that are known. We don't really use this. I don't, I don't know what term they use now, but we would call them a goody two-shoes. You know, the individual who's always, they always seem to do it right. The teacher always likes them. And so because of that, we don't like them. But normally, not always, because, you know, they have their issues too. You could tell I was never that kid. But anyway, the issues may be that sometimes we don't like them because the kid is actually just good. 
We don't like righteousness in others. And we make fun of it. We mock it. We're the ones joining in to make fun of that kid. See, that means you don't love righteousness. All right, so if, you're, if you are in school, first grade, second grade, third grade, high school, and there are certain people in, that you know that are kind of like the goody tissue, you need to stop mocking them because that reveals where your heart is. You don't love righteousness. And I would say that if you don't love righteousness, it's difficult to prove you love God because to love God is to love that. It doesn't mean that person be your best friend. But, but you need to look at your life and evaluate it in light of what the scripture says. Are you maturing as a believer? So even if you're 12 years old, the Lord expects you to mature as a believer. And of course, the adults, we need to do the same. We sometimes do that towards others that we know. Do we have a longing in our heart to honor God? Do we love what is right? Do we glorify him with our lives? We want to make sure that our lives honor him. Thirdly is this, it's kind of, it's become a, a negative term in our society, but it's the test of submission. <clears throat> is there a compelling in your heart to submit to divine authority? Do you find yourself a willing servant of God, an eager servant of Jesus Christ? That's pretty much it. You come across the, 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 uh, the commands or the imperatives of the Bible, do you want to do them? Do we, do we want to follow through? The Bible says as a husband, the Bible says as a wife, there are certain things you must do in the way that you treat your spouse. That's, it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what's going on. What does the Bible say? Period. I mean, it, you know, people don't like it when you talk like that. You just, people say, you sound like a football coach. It doesn't matter what you sound like. That's just what the scripture says. When, when you read through the Old Testament and, and you see how God deals with Israel, he just tells them plainly, this is what you need to do. And, and then you, as you read, you find out that the exact thing he told them not to do, that's exactly what they end up doing. And so he, man, he brings the hammer down. It's, it's their fault. So we should be those individuals who desire, because we know it's what's best for us, to submit to God. And that's important for us to do in every facet of life. And of course, then in line with submission, then is that other word that's kind of negative, and that's the word obedience. Let me read to you from the, book, from the book of James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so the whole idea there is that we are to be doers of the word. That means we live in obedience to what it says. Some individuals have a hard time, what do you mean about this, you know, this the example he uses, a man looking in the mirror and then looking away and forgetting what he was. And, you know, but the idea when it comes to the word of God is to be different. When I was in high school, I was very, uh, 
OCD about pimples on my face. And even though everyone tells you not to do this, I popped them every day because I was not going to go to school with a pimple. It was just embarrassing. At least I thought it was. I guess it is. I don't know. But in my mind, it was embarrassing. And every now and then, I'm not trying to be gross, but every now and then there'd be these pimples you try to pop and they won't go. I have been the guy before who results to getting a pin, a straight pin, and dipping it in alcohol and trying to drill a hole and then squeezing it. I was desperate. But there were times either when I didn't do that or that didn't work that, of course, when you squeeze it and then nothing comes out, it gets worse. It seems to grow and turn a brighter shade of red so everybody can say, hey, look at that. <coughs> And I remember one day that that happened to me. I, I had gone through my routine and just wherever it was on my face, it just wouldn't go. And so I just kind of, you know, went to school and I forgot it was there, which didn't bother me all day until that afternoon when I looked in the mirror again. And it seemed to be the size of Mount Everest and was glowing like Rudolph's nose. And the embarrassment was overwhelming. And I made sure that whatever was necessary took place to get rid of that. I would rather have blood on my face than to have that thing. It was just, and so that's the idea. You look in a mirror and we, we can forget that there is a smudge or this or that or imperfection or whatever it happens to be. But when it comes to the word of God, the idea is, is that we don't, you don't do that. We need to do what it says. Because if you don't do what it says, you become like the natural man. You forget what's there. And it's of no value. It doesn't help. Remember what John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's really straightforward. It is, that's the evidence that we know Christ is that. You look at your life, do you see a desire to submit in every area of your life to the Lordship of Christ, who is really the sovereign of your life? When you hear the word of God, do you respond with a desire for obedience? That's the questions we should ask ourselves. <coughs> the last one I won't dwell on, it's really very simple, and that would be this, what do you love? What do you love? What do you love the most? What, whatever you love is what drives you. There are many things that we love. And so we need to ask ourselves as a Christian, what do I love? So here in Corinthians, in chapter 13, after Paul tells them to examine themselves, he says in verse 6, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Now I'll be honest, when you just kind of read through this portion of chapter 13, it can be kind of confusing as to what is he saying? Like, what's he talking about? And so hopefully, it's really very simple, and so I'm hoping when we get through this, you'll understand really the, the, the gist of what he's saying. And then we'll look at how that applies to our lives. So again, he says, I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test. If you read it in the Amplified, he says, I hope you will recognize and know that we are not disapproved on trial and rejected. In other words, remember the Corinthians have been lied to by these super apostles? Here, Paul is, is expressing his hope that they will come to their senses and recognize that he is the one who is truly a true apostle and not these false apostles. In other words, after being tested, he has to the test. The Living Bible, which I'm not recommending that you use it as study, but it, it's okay to read that paraphrase and really a pretty good tool to, to read through the Old Testament to your kids. It says, I hope, I hope you can agree that I have stood the test and truly belong to the Lord. So when he says that in verse 7, he says, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. 
Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. So basically what he's getting at is this. Paul's prayer is that the Corinthians might correct their conduct in every respect. He and his associates did not want to act as disciplinarians when they came, and so they would much prefer to see the evidence that true spiritual growth was taking place in the lives of these Corinthians. So his desire was not vindication of himself or of his helpers. That's what he means when he says, not that we ourselves may appear approved. Although that would certainly be the result if the Corinthians complied fully with this counsel. So Paul's real aim was the spiritual development of the Corinthians themselves, regardless of what it may have implied for Paul. So what you want to keep in mind here is there's this, there's this tension that's going on. And, and there's this group that has been very actively, they've not been subtle about it, they've been very open about it, in doing everything they can to ruin Paul. They've been bad-mouthing him, they've been putting him down uh, in every conceivable way, and then basically encouraging each other, backing each other up, you know, kind of supporting each other, speaking well of each other, to present to these Corinthians a united front, because they, are, they want to be the great ones, they want to be the leaders, they want to be the influence. They want to be the guys that they come to for advice. They want to have that authority. And so they've been going through this thing where they've been doing this in the church, and, and the effect on the believers there is not only are they then beginning to wonder about Paul, but it is affecting them spiritually, and they're moving away from the things that Paul had taught them. And so Paul's very concerned for them because they're no longer growing and maturing as believers. They're beginning to go in the opposite direction, and part of the evidence of that is that when it comes to this group, which is blatantly doing these things that are wrong, they're not saying a word. They're not doing anything. And so, so Paul, is, he's worried about them. And again, as we've pointed out many times, his main concern is not that they're not going to like him in the end. That's not what he's concerned about. What he's concerned about is what's going on here between them and the Lord. So when he says, even though we should, we should appear to have failed or we should be unapproved, that probably refers to this possibility that Paul and his helpers would lose their opportunity to speak severely and thus display a proof of apostolic authority. Remember, there was this whole thing where they said that Paul only says strong things when he's not there. That he writes to them with this strong language, like, you better do right or I'm going to come and settle business with you. That's kind of how they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, portraying Paul. But that when Paul comes in person, he's pretty meek. That he's just a weak dude. It's just a bunch of bravado. It's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. He's not, he doesn't have any power, he doesn't have any authority. And so the idea was almost as if, you know, Paul needs to come here himself and prove he's the boss man. They didn't say it that way, but that's kind of the idea. And so they're saying, yeah, Paul's not coming because he's, he doesn't have any of this authority. <coughs> and so Paul is basically saying, look, what I want is to see you guys mature, do the right thing, take action. So when I come, I don't have to do that. Now, when I, if I don't have to do that, 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 you know, I know in the end it can make me still look weak because I've written this, strong, this strongly worded letter and I show up there and, and I'm not, you know, bringing down the hammer. But I won't need to bring down the hammer. I don't really want to bring down the hammer because he wants them to grow and to mature, to progress in their lives as Christians. That's why he says in verse 8, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. So that's, again, his concern is their spiritual growth and maturity. And so this whole idea of, you know, him being weak. So basically he's just saying, look, so if I appear weak, so be it. I'm fine with that. I'm fine if you end up thinking I'm weak. 
He didn't really care. He just wants them to be strong in the Lord. So the train of thought then is, should Paul come to Corinth, find everything in order, then he'll have no occasion for giving these threatened proofs of his apostolic authority by the adoption of really stern measures, for there can be no power against the truth or a display of authority against the truth, but only on behalf of the truth. So this powerful demonstration of authority when the truth is established in a church would be a perversion of authority. If he showed up and they'd already done the right thing, and then he lowers the hammer and says, you know, you should have done it sooner and just kind of, you know, ring them out, that would have been wrong. And he recognizes that. That's the wrong way to, to, to display his authority and the power that he has. It's only justified when there's serious error and misconduct that is present and has not been dealt with. And it needs to be driven out so that the cause of truth can be vindicated. So for Paul, it would be a matter of rejoicing. If the state of the church when he arrives in Corinth is such that he can be weak, under no necessity to enforce authority. Because again, that would mean that the Corinthians were now powerful. They were now strong. Not merely in the sense that they were giving evidence of spiritual power, but more precisely in the sense that they have disciplined themselves. And then they've obviated the necessity for him to come to them with a rod. And then that's why he says, for this reason I write these things while I'm away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So once again, Paul is saying if he writes with sharpness when he's not there, it's with the purpose of eliminating the need for acting with sharpness or harshness when he's there. There is no renunciation of authority in his part. He doesn't say, well, I'm not really the boss. He doesn't say that. But his conduct is governed by the principle that his authority has been entrusted to him by the Lord to be used for constructive means and ends, not destructive. And he is allowing that to guide him. He is not allowing pride to dictate how he responds. Pride can rear its ugly head in a, in a lot of ways. And Paul is very much in tune with that because that kind of is what would drive him to do the wrong thing. If you've watched any of the news, I'm sure you're aware of the murders that took place, uh, I think it was Iowa, where the four students were kind of basically slaughtered in their, while they were sleeping. And so there's a lot of attention to that, and a lot of, you know, there's a lot of pressure that's brought on the, the police department and the DA, you know, because of all those things. And when that begins to happen, you know, people can respond in different ways, even those who are in authority. You know, they, they're, they're worried about what people will think about them. They're worried that people will think they're not doing their job. Or, in some cases, there's individuals who see that as an opportunity, an opportunity to be the person that people come to me for the real truth about the case. They come to me for how the, how the case is moving. I'm the one that understands the evidence or whatever the case may happen to be. And so, you know, as you kind of hear, as they talk about it, you know, they say, well, the DA said one thing and the police said something else. And, you know, I'm not sure all the ins and outs, but I know there's a little bit of that going on. It, sometimes it's driven by fear. Oftentimes it's a combination of fear and, and pride and arrogance. I think really what should be said is all those in authority should really say the same thing. Uh, we are, this is an open case. We're working hard. Uh, we are not going to discuss any evidence that we've discovered or any suspects at this time. Uh, we'll let, when we're ready, we'll let you know what's going on and then just leave it there. I don't care how much the press hounds you. You just don't, you know, because you can really mess up an investigation doing that. But see, pride comes in. 
and people become worried, you know, when the, when the tension's on, you know, when there's a division within the church, you know, what can happen when there's, co when there's conflict. People can become worried about what people are thinking about them, what people will think about them, what will be the fallout of this, will people still like me, will I still be in power, will I still be the one that people come to for advice, or whatever the case happens to be, will they see me differently, will they see me weak, will they see me strong? And so all those things, you know, are working in your mind, and, and if you're not in tune with the Lord, and you're not maturing as a believer, pride can get the best of you, and in a moment of weakness, whether it's a, a moment where you lack the discipline you should have or what have you, you will let something slip, maybe on purpose, because you want to reestablish that even though this situation makes me look weak, I'm not really weak. I really am whatever the case may happen to be. So the Corinthians need to understand that all that Paul does and says whether he is absent, whether he is present, it's directed towards building them up. Again, as I've said, Paul's opponents, they've challenged him to come and give a display of his power. Because that may impress the world, because that's what they're into. They're into the way that the world expresses power and might and authority and all those things. So again, Paul is just not going to give into that. In either case... Paul just wants his authority to be acknowledged only in the sense that their edification is promoted. So the decision now rests with them as to whether he is to come with a rod or in love or a spirit of meekness. So when it comes to this, we have to, so we should ask ourselves, okay, so now I've got it. You know, I, Paul's in a sense, whether you want to say he's swallowing his pride or he's keeping it in check and his main concern is that they grow and he's not going to respond in an immature way uh, to these accusations and, and he has a great love for the Corinthian believers and he wants them to take action so he doesn't have to do all these things when he gets there. What does it have to do with you and I in everyday living? Well, I think actually quite a bit. Because no matter who you are, or what station you are in life, there are various scenarios and situations where you have authority and some situations where you don't. If you are parents and you have, you know, you have children, that makes you a parent. There are times when we want to exercise our authority in a wrong way with our kids. We want them to know who's boss, right? Now, it is important for them to know who's boss, but the way we handle that can be wrong. And, so, and sometimes, you know, when they become teenagers, which is a delightful age, and they begin to think for themselves, sometimes there can be that contest. And maybe we're not doing as well reasoning with them, and so we want to lower the hammer. And we can do so in a, in a destructive way. And so what we need to recognize here, what we want is for them to grow and to mature. And that's how we make decisions. When it comes to husbands and wives, you know, people can scream and yell all they want about it, and the world hates it, but, you know, but in the, when it comes to the husband-wife relationship, the husband is the head of the home. That, that's all there is to it. There's a lot that goes into that, but, you know, that's, and there are times when the husband will not handle his responsibility correctly, where he may tell his wife, I don't want to talk about it. That's not a very good response. Is that how we're supposed to lead, loving and kind? I don't think so. So I mean, you know, there's this idea that you just need to put her in her place. That's not very good either. That'd be wrong to do that. I know that when people are having difficulty, there can be a lot of frustrations. But exercising our, our authority in a demeaning way is not the way to do that. And sometimes what we do, we do it kind of in a passive chicken way, where something, you know, it kind of, it, let's say there's a few other people that kind of know there's conflict, and then it kind of gets settled. Then when you're guys have done this. Maybe women do this too. But you're away from the wife and you're kind of joking around with your friends. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you just got to put your foot down. You loser. 
<laughs> that is not what happened. Why? Well, we talk that way because we want to save face, because we want to be, appear to be whatever it happens to be. And so as Christians, we're not concerned about that. As Christians, I'm not concerned what other people think about me when it comes to how I deal with my family, whether they think I'm strong or I'm not strong. It's really none of their business. The bottom line is I need to do what's right by them. And the responsibility that I have as the man of the home is to make sure that my wife and my children are what? In an environment where they will continue to be encouraged to grow in their faith as Christians. Period. That's my responsibility. When it comes to the church, you know, when it comes to elders, and sometimes, you know, the elders may do or say things people don't like, and there can be some conflict or whatever. The bottom line is, is what Paul was doing was t making every effort conceivable to give the people an opportunity and a chance to do what is right without being harsh because they, he, Paul was not going to lord it over them. Because there can always be some times where someone will say, you know, sometimes I just want to give an edict. And then this be done with it. That's not the way they were supposed to lead in the church. It's not supposed to be done that way. It can be hard. There's been many great sermons preached on why we're called sheep. Because sheep are really dumb animals. And they do a lot of dumb things. But the bottom line is, when it comes to leadership, no matter what form of leadership you're in in the church, it is to be done with patience and kindness and grace and goodness. Always seeking what is truly best for the other people, period. I've tried to live by this rule, and I know sometimes it can be mistaken, but I'd rather make a mistake on that side is, if I'm going to make a mistake, I do want to make a mistake on the side of grace. I don't want to be too harsh too quickly. There may be times when harshness is necessary, but you want to make sure that that, that is what has to be done. And so we make a mistake on the side of grace. As a congregation, there's authority in the life of the congregation. You know, as we, as we strive to do what's right here, uh, you know, we, we've, through, through the life of our church, we've done more than just talk about church discipline. You know, we have enacted it, and there's more than one stage. There's four stages, so you don't always hear about it, but there's been a, a desire to do that. Not to be the boss, not to be nosy, not to control people's lives, but because we truly want to help them and do what's beneficial. And so there can be times where, and I've, I've seen it done in a church, where an individual was brought before the church and they were voted out of membership and the church was wrong. It was a vendetta that a group had against an individual and there was no one else asking enough questions and they voted someone out. And that's, that's sinful. Whether the world, I don't care what the world thinks about it, we have to answer to the Lord. And so the church needs to take those things very seriously. That's why, you know, what, we're try, what we try to do, what we've done through the years is you bring up those, if, if it's going to be a case that's going to have to be brought before the church where the church is told, we want people to know in advance and to know what we're doing and what, we're, what we should be praying for, what we should be striving for in the lives of those individuals. So then when it comes to that point, it's clear that is what must be done. Because we don't want, we don't want to be too harsh. We want to follow Paul's example. This is for building others up. Always. That's what we want to see. And that's what we want to have done. And so Paul then gives us a great example. Because we have an example of a man here whose pride has easily been deeply affected. And he can respond in a lot of ways because of that. Because he, he doesn't want to give these others a leg up, so to speak. And he doesn't do it. And he knows what's being said about him. 
and he's okay with it. And he knows that if they change in response to his letter, some of those rumors about him won't go away, and he's okay with that. He knows in the end that some will probably still think that he's weak and that he only speaks boldly when he's away, and he's okay with that. He's not concerned with it. If they're going to grow and they're going to mature, that's what he wants to see done because he trusts the Lord. And so that's what we need to do as a group or as individuals in your home or at work or in other places, that when our authority is challenged in that way, don't hold on to your authority at all costs. Don't worry about that. The authority is real. You still have it. Your concern is for the, for the spiritual well-being of the others. And that is your goal. And if in the end, if whatever the issue is is resolved, but what's not resolved will be some of the feelings that people have about you, you need to let it go. And just trust the Lord with that. And the Lord will be fine with it. And you will be fine with it as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again, Lord, for your grace in our life. And Lord, as we look at Paul's life and the authority that you gave him, and then we see, Lord, how he handled authority. And we see, Father, the very real difficulty when others have a wrong opinion of you and then spread those things around and do great damage to your reputation, great damage to uh, how others will view you. Father, we, we can easily understand how one could respond in a way that could even still appear to be spiritual and yet find a way to vindicate themselves. I pray, Father, you would help us to recognize that we don't need to vindicate ourselves, that we can truly let that rest with you. We don't need to demand that others respect us. We can leave that with you. We need to fulfill the responsibilities that you've given to us. That we need to do so really in a stubborn way. Even if necessary, to disregard our own feelings for the sake of Christ, the sake of others. And if they find out the truth about us, great. But Lord, there's always those opportunities that others may never find out the truth about us. There may be those who will always think that we're weak or whatever the case may happen to be. Help us to let it go, Father. Help us to live for you with undivided loyalty and commitment. That, Father, we may be used by you in the lives of others, especially the ones that we love and care for. We thank you, Lord, for the people that you've brought in our life who've had lives like that. Not, Lord, that we've ever been involved in a conflict with them, but, but they have been individuals who are truly committed to what is truly what is best for others. And they've had a big impact in our life, and we thank you for them. I pray, Lord, that for those here who may not know Christ will understand that, as we've all kind of maybe assume, that the most important opinion anybody can have of us is the opinion you have of us. And your opinion of us is based on fact, not just a feeling. And for those who don't know Christ, they are separated from you. And that condition can never be changed unless they believe in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, they would recognize that, that they would recognize that it's their sin that has separated them from you, and they need Christ. I know, Lord, that they may be aware of maybe pride in their life, and they're struggling with that. And it's been damaging a lot of relationships they have with other people. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to realize that the answer is not just to be humble, but the first thing <coughs> is to humble ourselves to you. 
and similar to the truth of the Word of God. And so, Father, we ask that you would work in their hearts and enlighten them to the truth. As always, we do thank you. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.